Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We'll get started here. Appreciate everyone who's here, and we're continuing with our uh, weekly study on the Holy Spirit. We're in week six, and last week we had some of a somewhat of a weighty study with this idea of regeneration and justification and why the Holy Spirit came, which was to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the coming of the Holy Spirit then would be advantageous for the disciples, even though they did not want Christ to leave them. Christ knew that it was for their own good and for our good that the Holy Spirit would come. Our theme verses from last week, if you could call it a theme verse, John 16, 7 and 8 says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, says Christ. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. We read that... It was advantageous in that the Holy Spirit would give the wondrous gifts of power to the newly founded church, fledgling church. He was able to work in all locations around the entire world instead of being restricted bodily as Christ was. He was in the flesh. Christ, following his ascension, claimed his rightful place at the right hand of the Father to become our advocate and intercessor. We could call him our high priest to speak for us on our behalf to the Father. And also, as Christ ascended, all believers at that point forward would then be able to exercise a greater amount of faith. And we discussed last week how their faith increased greatly because of their dependence on the Holy Spirit without Christ being with them bodily. So Christ's work then continued as the Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit. The main activity, as verse 8 tells us, was to convict the world. Now, to convict someone is to declare them guilty of some criminal offense by a verdict of a jury or the decision of a judge. And we discussed last week the ultimate judge on the great day of the Lord will be Christ himself. John 5.24 explains, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Believers have escaped the judgment of God's wrath because of the Spirit's work of conviction which is showing sinners their sin. That was the weightiness of last week's lesson and I felt that weightiness and and I, I would say that I hate to do that but I don't because without that truth, uh, none would come to Christ. You have to recognize your own sin in order to recognize your need for a Savior. And then we also discuss then our Savior, the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us by faith, making us justified before God, allows us to escape this coming wrath of God on the great day of the Lord. So even now, the Holy Spirit is convicting sinners of sin. 
revealing the need for the perfect righteousness found in Christ. By trusting Christ, they will be saved from the judgment to come. And that is a promise. It's not they might be saved from the wrath to come, or possibly, but they will be saved. So this conversion or change from the natural man, the sinner, which is all of us, to this new creation is a work alone attributed to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear the gospel and eyes to see Christ for who he is, our Savior and Lord. This inward work of regeneration is a monergistic work, meaning it is by him alone, not any work that we could do, which is why we can say in certainty that we are saved by God's grace alone, by his gift of faith alone, which we accept with an open hand. We cannot add to or take away from this saving work. We can only accept what is offered. This acceptance of Christ's work on our behalf is evidence that the Holy Spirit has operated in this work of regeneration, which is the giving of a new heart and at the same time new desires. At the same moment of our regeneration, we're justified. We're made legally right before God. And we will be judged, just so everyone's clear on that, everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. However, believers are not judged based on the merits of their works alone, but by Christ's work, which is why we can stand before the throne. But we are still judged. And it's a different kind of judgment, and it's going to be based on Christ's merits, um, although the Bible does tell us that every idle word and every deed will be brought to light. So keeping that in mind. In Romans 8... 29 and 30, there is a logical order of this process of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called through the preaching of the word and the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, also glorified. So there is an order to salvation. It has a logical flow. It's called the ordo salutis. In God's sovereignty, he foreknew or foreloved and one of our famous memory verses, for God so loved the world, his elect, and the Savior died for them. He predestined these that he loved to be made into the image of Christ. And he effectually calls the elect by the preaching of the word and thereby enacted this inward change to want Christ and to want the things of God. That is the supernatural or the miraculous that we discussed, I believe, a couple of weeks ago. At the same moment, these elect are also justified. That was last week. That was last week. These elect are also justified or made right with God at the same moment. So these events of regeneration, which is the implanting of the new heart, and justification, which occurs at the moment of regeneration 
should be distinguished because they, no one can be justified without regeneration. We can't accept the things of God with our natural heart. So, but they cannot be separated. One event cannot exist without the other. One cannot be justified without the change of heart needed to actually believe the truth of the gospel. So there is this order. Each of these salvific terms related to salvation has a distinct link in this chain of salvation. Each of the links is necessary, and the good news is that they will be completed in the lives of each of God's children. Remove even one link, and the chain breaks. Salvation would then be impossible for fallen man. So the question I'm going to ask this morning is, what happens next once we are justified? And you could say, well, based on the ordo salutis, we are glorified. Well, we are not yet glorified. Glorification doesn't occur until after we leave this earth. Does this work of making believers a new creation spiritually eliminate every evil desire and make us perfectly holy as we are in the flesh? Short answer is no. Because at glorification, we will then be perfect. And as it, Scripture tells us, when we see Christ, then we will be as he is. We have not seen Christ bodily. We're not in heaven yet. So, glorification, full glorification, is not here. So, continuing through our lives until glorification is a work that the Holy Spirit does in concert with the believer. It is not monergistic then, but synergistic. Now, that may be something that people want to push back against because, as with you, I give all glory to God for all of his works in salvation. Whenever I say synergistic, I'm not taking any glory from God because without the work of the Holy Spirit, there would be none saved and there would be none, as we're going to discuss this morning, there would be none sanctified. And that is why the title of this lesson that I chose was Cooperation in Sanctification. So, thankfully, and God be praised that it's so, the Holy Spirit does not leave us at the moment of justification to leave us on our own. Beginning at the moment of justification, but not being entirely complete until our glorification, is this in-between time, which all believers are currently uh, within at this moment. R.C. Sproul, in a lengthy DVD series entitled Foundations, says, The second we are justified, a real and true change is enacted on us by God the Holy Spirit. So that this process of sanctification, by which we are made holy and brought into conformity with Christ, again, we are his craftsmanship, that the change of our nature toward holiness and toward righteousness begins. And it begins immediately. So continuing throughout our lives until glorification is this work that Christ, through the Holy Spirit, does within the believer. Through his word and through the effective working of the Holy Spirit. 
It is cooperative. Both God is working and we are working. In Philippians 2.12 we read, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul tells us to work out our salvation. It is work. The, sal- or the Christian is active in this effort. And let me be clear, when we work, we're not earning salvation. That has already been earned for us. Remember, we accept it with an open hand. There's nothing we can add to that. But also notice how we are to be active in fear and trembling. The Christian does not have some lofty, proud air in this endeavor of being made holy, as is often mischaracterized by the world. Remember the holier-than-thou attitude, goody-goody, right? There is instead a reverence for both the work of God. We understand that it is by His work alone that we are saved and by His empowerment that we overcome sin. So we have this passionate humility that we experience when we become aware of this sanctification or this perfection because of the flesh is far from us. We're never puffed up. The more we learn about holiness, the less holy we feel and the less holy we know that we are. So at the same time, we pursue this holiness for the sake of our love for Christ and His work in us by this empowering Holy Spirit. So this morning as we examine all these various scripture texts that we're going to look at and by analyzing our own experience, we will know that this continuing work of sanctification is a working together of the Holy Spirit with the redeemed sinner to be made more and more holy as we walk in this world as believers. And as we do so, we need to give praise where praise is due, um, knowing that because we are doers of the word and not hearers only, it is only through the work of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. So let's keep that in mind as we pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, as we join together this morning, we pray that you would unify our hearts and minds so that we can understand your word and also learn to find ways of pleasing you and also how to live holy before you because we have been commanded to be holy because you are holy. We thank you, Lord, for your work in us and your continued work in us. And may we continue to rely on you and to give you glory because you are solely deserving. Uh, There is no work that we could ever boast of that we ever did on our own. It is only by your grace and by your power that that we are sanctified. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this term, sanctification, comes from the root Latin word of sanctus and ficara. Sanctus means holy, which means 
to be set apart or to be made holy. The Westminster or fakara, by the way, means to make. So sanctification to make holy. The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, what is sanctification with this definition? The work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The Old Testament Hebrew word is for holy is kadosh, meaning to be set apart. And if you've already looked at your student handout, you know what I'm about to say. If you haven't looked at it, this is a little trivia for you. Kadosh, 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 Adonai Sevaot. Those of you who have not looked at your student handout, would you like to guess, any Hebrew scholars in here, what that phrase is? Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Right. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Adonai, the Lord, Savaot, God Almighty, or God of hosts. So in the New Testament, we find the word hagios, means the same thing. Something set apart and distinguished from the common. Now we've referred to the Holy Spirit all through our lessons without really having drawn attention to his title of holy. We don't normally say the Holy Father or the Holy Son, but we do say Holy Spirit. Now this, this does not mean that the Father and the Son are not holy, for we know they share equally all of their divine attributes, especially holiness, which I would say is the highest thing that we could think of when we think of his attributes. This title refers also to the Holy Spirit's role of making us holy. The Holy Spirit is our sanctifier, the one who makes holy. We could also say the Holy Spirit is set apart from all other spirits. That's another way you, we distinguish the Holy Spirit. His, the Latin is Spiritus Sanctus. And there's a poem, if we have time at the end, that I'll, that I'll read from a very great book of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision. I've heard it read in here before, uh, but it actually goes by that title. So if we have time, we will, we will read that. Now, being sanctified has two primary meanings that are found in Scripture. And this is in your handout, if you want to look at that as I read. An immediate separation, a setting apart from the world for the purpose of service to God. So it's not just negative. It's a separation, but it's also more than that. It's, there's a positive aspect of being put into service to God. So it is a recognition of position apart from the ordinary. So the nation of Israel, even though they were not perfectly obedient, was always God's holy nation. They were always set apart from other nations, not because of their works, but because God set them apart. He made them holy. Many times they were even bent towards evil, but they were still a holy people. So, in the Old Testament we find various things that are sanctified or set apart for the purposes of God. 
the holy ground where on Moses was standing, he had to take off his shoes. Also, Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law, the holy mount. The tabernacle was a holy place. The temple, full of holy vessels and holy instruments that were used for the sake of worship. So these sanctified things are inanimate objects. They are being set apart from the world, from the ordinary, into the service of God. So then we have our second meaning of sanctification, which is this process of being made holy. It is an inward cleansing from the pollution of sin. So this second meaning is going to be our primary use in regards to this progressive, progressively sanctified life of the believer. So this process of making men and women more Christ-like, although we are positionally identified with Christ and his righteousness and his holiness are attributed to us once and for all at our justification, there is still sin living within us as long as we're in this flesh. Although believers are a new creation spiritually, and the Spirit of God dwells in us, working within us, if you are honest with yourself, you would know that you are still tempted sorely by the flesh, by the world, and the devil. These are our adversaries. Because we are in what Paul describes as a body of sin or a body of death, in Romans 7, 21 through 24, he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. He's a believer. He's writing to the Romans, other believers. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? There is a conflict of two natures. The believer has a new desire to please God, but is at war with the flesh. Earlier in Romans seven eighteen, Paul writes, For I know, he's certain of this, that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. So we see the conflict. I dare say that if you are a believer and are not in this conflict with sin and the flesh at some level, something is seriously amiss. It is usually those who walk closest to God and are students of the word that are most intimately aware of their own sinfulness. Paul was one of the most sanctified of believers. I don't think we could argue that. But he was always warning us to be on guard with a full suit of spiritual armor. Why? For Satan's cunning attacks. Peter describes Satan as a what? A roaring lion, prowling, seeking whom he may devour. 
So this warfare and sanctification is described by Abraham Kuyper. He says, If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the conflict is engaged. Our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. End of quote. Although the reign and rule of sin has been rendered null and void, remember we're dead to sin, the presence of it is not yet finally destroyed. Mark 14, 38 tells us to watch and pray as to not fall into temptation. Galatians 6, 1 warns us not to become complacent lest we fall into what we thought we had overcome. We may be helping someone else with some sin. We're feeling very confident. You know, we're, in, we're helping someone out of a sin, but then we fall into the same sin. So we are supposed to be on guard. So when we have been freed from the curse of the law and declared righteous before God, why are we repeatedly exhorted to become sanctified? If we're already made righteous before God, why should we become sanctified? Well, becoming is a word that means we have not yet arrived. We're all in a state of becoming. We will not have actualized or arrived at a perfect, perfectly holy status until after we leave this world. John MacArthur says that sanctification is the fruit of salvation. It's the transforming process by which God's people shed their past sinfulness and grow to reflect His holiness. And if you truly belong to God you are undergoing the process of sanctification right now. End of quote. Paul writes to, first, writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7. He says, Discipline yourself, or train yourself, for the purpose of godliness. Jerry Bridges, wonderful author, especially in the area of sanctification. So if you're struggling in the area of sanctification, Jerry Bridges has... Wonderful books. The Practice of Godliness is the one that I pulled this quote from. He says, We Christians may be very disciplined and industrious in our business, our studies, our home, or even our own ministries. But we tend to be lazy when it comes to our exercise of this training in our own spiritual lives. We would much rather pray, Lord, make me godly. And expect him to pour some godliness into our souls in some mysterious way. Now God does in fact work in mysterious way to make us godly. But he does not do this apart from fulfillment of our own personal responsibility. As we read, we are to train ourselves to be godly. End of quote. We are certainly responsible for this growth. And we are certainly helped by the Holy Spirit. This is, again, a synergistic process.
Now, in this idea of our work and the work of the Holy Spirit, there are two extremes of the spectrum. And they have been identified as heresies in the history of the church. Earlier, it was said that we are active participants in this process of sanctification. The word active is an accurate term. But there is a heretical teaching known as activism. Anytime ism is added to a word, it does not make that word the same word. I may be a human, but I don't advocate for the ideas of humanism. And I exist, but I'm not an existentialist or advocating for that worldview. So activism is a heresy of self-righteousness or works righteousness. When someone sees sanctification as a process that they achieve all by themselves, the self-made Christian, this view removes the glory due to God and his work and replaces it with a man glorifying in his own efforts. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Some people seem to think that once men and women are born again, the activity of God in them ceases. Because God has given them a new nature, they say they have nothing to do now, but exercise the new nature. And they do that by reading the scriptures and understanding and applying them. In connection with their sanctification, they believe they do everything themselves. So activism is this purely self-reliant teaching and is unbiblical. Activism often leads to extreme forms of legalism where God has left open to the freedom of man, our modern-day Pharisees add to the laws of God, and they legislate more laws to follow. How to wear one's hair. What foods to eat. What style of clothing has been approved, or how many times one must pray, and how to pray, to be right with God. Now, these things in themselves are not wrong. I hope you're taking care of your hair. Right? That's a serious issue with some areas of the world. Cleanliness. Eating properly, we would all agree, is a very important thing to do. Modestly dressing, of course. A consistent, genuine, sincere Prayer life, essential. But when these things are added to the requirements for making one right with God and these man-made laws, one has added man's laws to God's laws, which never should be done. There are a multitude of scriptural references uh, to combat these heresies. Um, We'll start first with activism. We haven't discussed the second one yet. But activism, what could you tell someone who says that they pull themselves up? 1 Corinthians 6.11 states, Such were some of you sinners, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. A work of God in us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, 
Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. By what? Our own works? No. I heard several of you say, by the Spirit and faith and in the truth. All who are chosen, the elect, the family of God, they are a work of God. Not only at the beginning of our salvation, from the beginning of the from before the foundation of the world, but throughout our sanctification by the Spirit. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 states, Now to him who is able to do far, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we must rec also recognize that any zeal that we have to become righteous stems from this work of God in us, lest we become boastful and arrogant. And I would say that if that is characterizing any person who believes in their own works in and of themselves, there is a coming humiliation if they are believers. The Holy Spirit will not allow us to continue to think it is all us because he is our teacher and a good teacher doesn't allow his students to continue in what is wrong. They're corrected. For whom the Lord loves, he also chastens. If we are his, he will make it clearly known to us who is the true source of our strength in this work of sanctification. So we could call it the antithesis of activism, quietism. This is very popular today. Although we are to be quiet before the leading of the Spirit, quietism, notice the ism, is an exclusive work of the Holy Spirit. Quietism teaches that we do not need to be trying in efforts to be sanctified. Their motto, believe it or not, is let go and let God. And I've read that a lot in the past eight years or nine years since I've been on Facebook all over the place. People post it, let go and let God. And this was the motto of adherence to quietism and monasticism, and we continue to hear this same phrase today. And back in, I think it was 53, which is a chapter that I was reading from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Remember we talked about his view or his explanation of why activism was wrong. And now he talks about why quietism is wrong. He says, if all we have to do to be sanctified is to, and he quotes this, let go and let God, to surrender ourselves and to look to Jesus. And we're talking about sanctification, not justification, okay? Then the apostles have wasted a great deal of ink and time and energy in arguing with us about this doctrine. In saying, therefore, in the light of that, now then, apply it. Do this and, and do not do that. Cleanse yourselves. Why should they have said all that if we need only surrender, wait, look, and abide? And I was 
very tempted to read that with his Welsh accent because as I read his stuff, I'm always thinking of his voice. But to the quietest, where we are not to lift a finger for our own sanctification, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, if we read, work out your own salvation. 1 Peter 2, 21 says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. That's an active participation. A command to follow, to imitate Christ in action. In John 13, 14, and 15, Jesus tells his disciples, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. He continues in verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. There is an active participation. If we recline spiritually on the operating table of the Holy Spirit as he brings life to us, which he does, we're dead spiritually, he makes us alive. Do we then remain on the table after he has made us alive? Or do we rise up and as scripture tells us, to run with endurance the race set before us. To fight against the flesh, the world, and Satan in the full armor of God. Let us never fall into complacency and remove this responsibility we have to personally follow Christ. So let's look now at the practical implications now that we know that all glory goes to God for our sanctification, and also that we are responsible for this pursuit of holiness in our own lives, how do we do this practically? How does the Holy Spirit then work within us? In short, he is our teacher, as Christ claimed to be teacher. He is our illuminator, allowing us to make sense of these things that we are taught, and also he is our empowerment. As teacher, even in the Old Testament, Nehemiah tells us, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, Paul writes, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. In 1 John 2.27, we find... As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. All throughout the Psalms, we find the psalmist urgently asking to be taught God's statutes. John MacArthur writes, What Christ did for the disciples in opening their minds to understand the Scripture when He was with them, the Holy Spirit does for the Christian today by teaching us what is that holy, acceptable will of God through the Scriptures. We are then illuminated or able to see the benefits of the teaching that we have received. The unfolding of your words gives light, as the psalmist writes, 
It imparts understanding to the simple. We only see physically, with our own eyes, what light reflects or bounces off the objects and then refracts or is bent to be processed by our minds. In a similar way, the teaching of God is a light that we see. And illumination is the understanding of what it is we're trying to grasp, what it is that we're actually seeing in this light of truth. So there's important things to understand about illumination. And some people think that they are self-illuminated if they sit and meditate for a long enough time apart from the scriptures. And we know false religions are very uh, adamant about meditation, but it's an empty meditation. So as we're illuminated by God's word, there are six things to consider, and I don't think this is on your handout. So just bear with me here. It says, illumination does not function outside of God's word. That's number one. Experience is not the final word, nor is the wisdom of man. We must be in the scriptures. Illumination does not guarantee that every Christian will agree doctrinally. You say, well, if you're in the scriptures enough, I know that you would be of one mind doctrinally. Well, how about the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, and George Whitfield? They were contemporaries, but they had completely different doctrinal views about salvation and, and how one comes to God. And also, in, uh, well, the, we'll just call them the doctrines of grace. MacArthur and Sproul, in our present time, differed on the idea of infant baptism, which we're probably, most of us are aware of. Earlier during the Reformation, the German reformer Martin Luther and the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli differed on the topic of transubstantiation in communion. So, a lot of doctrinal disputes, even by men so immersed into the scriptures. So illumination, then, number three, does not mean that we will know everything about God, for he is infinite. He is infinite. We'll, not, we'll never know everything about God, which is one of the glories of our eternity, that we're going to constantly be amazed, and the glory of God will constantly be beautiful to us. Illumination, number four, does not render the need for human teachers unnecessary. And there are scriptural passages, Ephesians 4.11, 1 Timothy 3.2, 2 Timothy 4.2. These verses talk about being taught and the need for sound doctrine. Number five, illumination is not a substitute for dedicated personal Bible study. As I said before, you can't just sit in a room and expect to be illuminated. You must read the scriptures and then meditate on them. Illumination, number six, is not a one-time experience, but an ongoing day-by-day -day progression of understanding. So it's moment by moment, day by day, as we learn through the scriptures, we will become more mature and more illuminated as we, as we go and walk with the Lord. So the Holy Spirit also then empowers the believer to continue in those things that they have been convinced of by the Holy Spirit. 
the continuity from receiving instruction and having that instruction illuminated in the mind to understand is this necessary act of doing that which we know to do. And this is where all the pieces come together. This is what it's about. Colossians 3, 16 and 17 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which is what we do as we gather together as believers, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The Holy Spirit cleanses us by the washing of the water of the word. As we study the scriptures, there is this increased awareness of the sin that remains in the flesh, and this is accompanied by an increase of disdain and hatred for that which we recognize as sin. The word used to describe this strength of the spirit that overpowers the remaining influence of this flesh is mortification, death of the flesh. In Romans 8.13 it says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit, believers, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. In Romans 6, 11 through 13, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. There's the negative, but there is the positive. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Just as those inanimate objects of worship were used, those vessels used in the temple for worship, so are we, as we're described, temples of the living God. This is not in my notes, but I'd like to say, if you see a sin or if you hear a sin, think of being in the sanctuary. By the way, sanctuary, this place set apart, sanctus. What would you like to hear echoing through this hall? Well, if you're watching a television show in the comfort of your own home, and they are taking our Lord Jesus' name in vain, that's resonating within your holy temple, within your own body. Does that grieve the Holy Spirit? Of course it does. Does it grieve us? It should. When we see something that is not right, it's entering that temple through the eyes, the windows of our temple. Does it grieve us? Well, it grieves the Holy Spirit. We must be dead to sin. We mortify these deeds. Remember, it is an active participation. So here's a rapid-fire rapid list of, of things that we do. We stand fast. We fight. We flee youthful lusts. We follow after righteousness. We put off the old man and put on the new. 
So having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So what is our motivation to work for our sanctification? It is the promise of of our King. It is the love that we have for Christ our Savior. It is the hatred for the sin that He hates. It is the love we have for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that they too will be presented spotless before the judge who will reveal every idle word and deed. And remember, we're not in this alone. Of course we're not. The Holy Spirit will see to it that all of God's children are moving toward holiness. That is my comfort because I know if left to myself, I would not be constantly moving towards holiness. So do not be obstinate but be obedient children of God. So we'll end there. It is 9.50. And I didn't read the Puritan prayer, so you'll have to go by Valley of Vision. So you're welcome. All right, let's pray together. Our Lord, as we consider this process of sanctification, it is daunting because... As we consider the sin that is within our flesh, it is, it is very daunting. But we thank you, Lord, that you have given us every necessary empowerment and teaching to, to work towards and work out in fear and trembling our salvation. And Lord, we pray that if we're convicted even now of some sin that you would empower us to mortify that for your pleasure and for your smile of approval. And Lord, we know that our righteousness is in Christ, and we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us the means to become holier day by day, uh, that we would, on the last day, be glad and joyful and rejoicing. And we thank you, Lord, for all this truth in your word, and we would be nothing apart from you and your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.